0: Ninth Step Murders, Season 2, Episode 2
1: Sugita Isao cursed as he rounded the corner into the atrium of the Japanese Sword Museum and nearly ran into one of the security robots. He checked his data sleeve to make sure it was transmitting his position to the automated systems. Sometimes he wondered why they needed a human to work the night shift here at all. Not that he wasn't grateful for the employment. It was an absolutely brainless job, and sometimes he imagined he was playing a game on his sleeve. It wasn't as interesting as Megasteria, which let you make friends with fantastic creatures and go on walking adventures with them. But the museum's security software very helpfully guided Ecel on his foot patrols every night, even providing prompts to verify that doors were locked, alarms were set, and so on. Isao yawned while avoiding another passing robot, and tapped his sleeve to confirm that an emergency exit door was secured. As he approached the first-floor atrium, the power in the building went out. This wasn't an unusual occurrence in post-war Tokyo, so Isao simply stopped walking and logged the event on his sleeve. The Chinese kept promising to improve local infrastructure in the Ryogoku district now that their drone border had been extended east across the Sumida River. But it hadn't happened yet. Apparently other things were higher priority to them. Like manufacturing that huge display case for the museum's new exhibit of Yasukunito. Moving red lights caught Isao's eye, and he looked up to see a pair of security robots approaching him. Each one had a ring of display lights circling the top of its conical body, which stood as tall as Isao's chest. The lights normally lit up in a chase pattern orbiting each robot's head, but both of these robots' rings were fully lit up, flashing red. The lead bot ran into Isao's boot, bounced off, and then ran into him again. Isao backed out of its way and brought up the override controls on his sleeve. While he was looking for the stop button, A third bot approached from his other side, its light ring also flashing red, and slammed into his shoulder. Stop it! Isao shouted, moving away and running into two more bots that had clustered around him. What? What is this? He frantically slapped at his sleeve controls as more robots gathered around him, the flashing of their red lights seeming more and more menacing. The bots didn't have any external manipulators just cameras and speakers to record mischievous activity and warn the perpetrators. But they did have very sturdy drive motors, and there were enough of them now that Esau was pinned against the wall, unable to move. He struggled to keep his arm free, giving up on the robot controls and now trying to call for help. Just as Esau dialed his phone, every speaker in the museum's PA system started blaring a very loud K-pop song. He shouted as he saw his phone call connecting. I'm at the museum. The power's out and the robots are malfunctioning. He kicked at the nearest robots, clearing a path away from the wall. The bots continued mobbing him, nearly knocking him off balance as he ran for the nearest stairwell. These robots couldn't climb stairs. Just as Isao reached the door to the stairwell at the end of the hall, the lights came back on. Isao skidded to a halt and blinked against the brightness, turning to see the robots now dispersing. All their lights were back to normal as well. The music was still going, though. Isao tried his sleeve controls, but he couldn't turn off the sound system. He had a sudden surge of fear that someone was in the building and crept through the main hall toward the exit. But Isao stopped at the entrance to the Yasukuni-to exhibit gallery and watched, jaw hanging open, as one of the security robots rolled through the room. The entire central display case of historic swords was gone, as if it had never been there. Not even an outline of its rectangular footprint on the blank concrete floor. Impossible! Isao exclaimed. The robot turned as if attracted by his voice, and ran over his foot on its way out of the gallery. The sun was just rising over the edge of the Japanese Sword Museum building when Emma Higashi, standing in the parking lot, saw her partner approaching on foot. Emma hid what she had been doing on her data sleeve. She didn't want Miyako to know too much about the progress of Emma's unofficial investigation into Santiago's assassination. For Miyako's sake, at least one of them could keep her hands clean. After staying up all night, Emma was very close to finding what she needed to finish the job. But the closer she got, the more she started to doubt whether she could follow through. Was she really going to hunt down this sniper on her own? When she reached the end of the trail that Ueda had provided, could she actually pull the trigger, figuratively and literally? That was a problem for later. Right now, she had to attend to her day job. Is your hair different? Emma asked Miyako the first thing that popped into her head. She really was tired. Keep it together, Higashi. Miyako touched the back of her neck. A little shorter. It's summer. Huh. Miyako followed Emma past the police cordon and into the museum, where CSI Sato was waiting for them. Good morning. You're probably wondering why I invited you here. Among other things, Emma said. Nishimura said this was a robbery case. Yes. Sato pointed at a security guard next to the elevators, who was being interviewed by two uniformed police officers. That guard, Sugita Isao was on duty last night during a local power failure. When the lights came back on, he discovered the theft. Miyako raised a hand. Robbery seems outside our particular purview as investigators. Not when the stolen items are national treasures. Sato held out a museum brochure. The Chinese were displaying Yasukunito here. Yasukunito? Emma repeated, taking the brochure. Like the shrine? Sato glanced at Miyako, and she grumbled. Swords? They were crafted at Yasukuni shrine toward the end of World War II. Each sword was made for a specific Japanese military officer. Many yasukuni were captured by the Chinese during the conflict. Emma raised an eyebrow. And now they've brought them back. It is a controversial exhibit, Miyako said tightly. No shit. Emma didn't know about the swords but she knew plenty about what the Japanese military had done when they occupied China. And she knew better than to bring up that history with Miyako, now that the shoe was on the other foot. Nobody wins a war, her boot camp instructor had said. You only survive war. Emma unfolded the museum brochure to see a photograph of the main gallery. Most of the exhibit, ironically titled Making Peace, consisted of large screens arranged around the perimeter of the circular space. The centerpiece was nearly 30 Yasukunito inside a brutalist display case, arranged as if they had been scattered across a mountaintop diorama. It was not subtle. It was also currently not there. The swords were right here, in the middle of the room. Emma held up the brochure for Miyoko to see. But the entire display case is gone now. Miyako frowned. Why would anyone go to the trouble of dismantling the display if all they wanted was the artifacts inside? Sato smiled. They did not, Inspector. The swords are gone, but the case is still here. Miyako stretched out one hand, stepped forward, and gasped. That's right. Sato's grin returned as he pressed a button on his phone. The air in the middle of the room shimmered, and then the display case appeared, looming before Emma. She stumbled backward. Holy shit! Emma muttered. It was invisible! Sato declared triumphantly. Miyako spun around to face him. How did this cloak get here? It's supposed to be with the scientists at Meikai University. An international coalition had been formed to study the invisibility technology after it was recovered during the case of the fallen executive. Sato shrugged. Reported stolen last night. The governor kept it quiet, of course. We wouldn't want anyone to panic over potentially invisible thieves. And who's investigating that theft? Emma asked, looking into the display case. Empty, of course. The inside had been hollowed out. Apparently from below. Tunneling under a museum to steal precious artifacts seemed so cliché, but it did look like it had worked in this instance. Sato stared blankly at her. I would guess you, Higashi-san and Koreda-san. These crimes must be related, don't you think? Miyako made sure that Emma got some coffee on the way from the museum back to Ninth Step Station, so she would be steadier when they reported in to Superintendent Nishimura. Her partner seemed more sluggish than usual this morning, but Miyako didn't want to pry into Emma's personal life. Walk me through it again, Nishimura said, closing the door to his office and sitting back down at his desk. Miyako and Emma sat as well. Sato believes the theft occurred during the power outage. It was only the power to the museum building that was cut, Miyako said. The security cameras dropped out at the same time, but we believe that was a separate breach timed to coincide with the blackout. The computer system was definitely compromised. That's why the security robots and the sound system also malfunctioned. The data miners are looking into it now. So there's no footage of the exhibit actually disappearing? Nishimura asked. No, it happened during the camera outage, Emma said. The cloak itself wouldn't have been visible anyway, so someone could have snuck it into the building before the museum closed, stashed it in an empty corner until the pre-programmed distraction occurred. Tell me about that, Nishimura said. I understand the robots to waylay the human security guard, but why the loud music? To cover the sound of drilling, Miyako said. Or whatever mechanical means the thieves used to dig up under the display case and hollow it out. She worked her sleeve to transfer a crime scene video to Nishimura's desktop display. They dug up from an old, unused subway tunnel, Emma said. The music only covered them for a few minutes, so they must have had some heavy-duty construction equipment on hand. That should narrow down our list of suspects. What's this? Nishimura pointed to a small machine lying on the floor at one corner of the display case. Drones, Miyako said. There were four underneath the cloak. Sato believes the thieves used them to fly the cloak into the gallery and drop it onto the display while the power was out. He's working on tracing them, but they are common commercial models. Nishimura shook his head. What about underground? Any evidence there? CSIs are down there. Emma said, but it's pretty dirty. I wouldn't hold my breath. I suppose the Chinese are very upset about this, Miyako said. I'm surprised they haven't sent their own investigators already. We have our new friend to thank for that. Nishimura stood and waved at someone behind Miyako and Emma. The two women stood and turned to look. And Miyako began to regret letting Emma drink all that coffee right before this meeting. Good morning, detectives, Ren Daisuke said as he opened the door to Nishimura's office. Ryogoku District's new police captain was a known Nakajima kai lieutenant, appointed by the Chinese in a show of cooperation that fooled no one. His presence set Miyako's teeth on edge. Emma's face indicated she was feeling even less charitable. Captain Ren, Nishimura said. I was just discussing the theft of the Yasukuni-to with Inspector Koreda and Lieutenant Higashi. They are making good progress on the case. That is good to hear, Ren said, standing in the doorway and making no move to enter the office. Do you have any particular suspects? Our people are interviewing museum employees now, Miyako said before Emma could say anything confrontational. Lieutenant Higashi and I were just about to go talk to the Coalition scientists about the Invisibility Cloak. Good, good. I understand the two of you have dealt with this technology before. We confiscated it from a criminal, Emma said. We were all kind of hoping it wouldn't be used again for more crimes. That is unfortunate, Ren said. Our Chinese friends hope you will be able to close this case quickly and recover the stolen items intact. Emma frowned. You think someone's going to melt down historic swords? Ren shrugged. Do you already know the motive of the perpetrators? My understanding, Emma said, is that Yasukunito are important cultural and historical artifacts— And their significance is why the Chinese chose to display them the way they did. Indeed. Ren stared at her. China is concerned that the theft was politically motivated. An act of... resistance, let's call it. Miyako bristled. I believe it's too early to speculate about that, Captain. Let us identify some persons of interest first. Of course. Ren made the slightest of bows. I'll let you get back to your work. He nodded at Nishimura. Please let me know if you need anything at all, Superintendent. Good day. He closed the door and walked off. Once he was out of sight completely, Emma punched a fist into her open palm and grumbled. I'll show you motive, asshole. Emma, Miyako warned in a whisper. Nishimura sighed. Go talk to the scientists, please. After solving the murder of Arai Rinsho a few months ago, Tokyo police had released his company's prototype invisibility cloak into the custody of an international coalition formed specifically to study the device. There was no clear protocol for dealing with criminal evidence that also happened to be a major new technology, but the powers that be had decided to err on the side of pragmatism. All records of the cloak's development had been deleted from the Taniguchi Group's computers, and its inventor was now in prison and unwilling to cooperate. No nation wanted any other to have the tactical advantage of invisibility. This compromise was a way of ensuring that. The scientists were housed at Meikai University in the ASEAN sector, which had also donated laboratory space for their work. Emma watched as two technicians tested the cloak that she and Miyako had brought back, then locked it in a safe. Who has access to that safe? Emma asked the gathered lead scientists. There were supposed to be seven of them, representing all three factions in Tokyo. Japan, China, and ASEAN plus four permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. France, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The American, Dr. Alan Mitchell, was conspicuously absent. Only the UN scientists. Pascal-san, Voronova-san, Neville-san, and Mitchell-san, said Goto, the Japanese representative. Per the coalition agreement, True-san, Salgado-san, and I do not have access to the prototype hardware. Emma nodded. Taniguchi Group's chairman, Arai, had been murdered because he'd been trying to sell the cloak to the Chinese in Tokyo. So it made sense to let the non-local scientists lead the reverse engineering efforts. So where is Dr. Mitchell now? Anybody know? Nobody had seen him today. He was still here in the lab when I left last night, offered Salgado, the ASEAN scientist. And what time was that? Miyako asked, taking notes on her sleeve. Eight o'clock, maybe. But he was in the common area with his laptop. Salgado pointed to the room adjoining the secure workshop they all stood in now, where Emma and Miyako's uniformed police escort waited. Nishimura wanted to make sure everyone watching the investigation understood how seriously Tokyo MPD were taking this matter. None of us can enter this area alone. You saw that the access point requires two separate key cards. Great, Emma said. So one of you is an accomplice. What my partner means, Miyako said quickly, is that we will need to verify where each of you was last night. Just to rule you out as suspects. Sure, that's what I meant, Emma said. The officers in the other room will take your statements, Miyako said, opening the door. Higashi-san, may I speak to you outside? Emma let Miyako lead her through the outer room and into the hallway, leaving the scientists with the two uniforms. Sorry about that. I was really hoping this would be a one-and-done situation. Even though our prime suspect is American? Miyako asked. I know plenty of bad Americans, Emma said, trying and failing to keep Charles Yardley out of her head. Have you already put out an APB on Mitchell? Yes, but it seems strange that he would flee without his partner, whoever that is. What if he was working alone? Emma chewed her lip thoughtfully. Salgado said he was on his laptop last night. We can verify that with security camera footage. And the Sword Museum was an inside job. Somebody knew how to hack into their security system. Perhaps your peacekeeper friends can tell us more about Dr. Mitchell. Worth a try. Emma brought up her sleeve and saw an alert. Hold up. Looks like we got a bolo on Mitchell already. She tapped to open the message. Oh no, Miyako said, reading faster than Emma did. Emma groaned. Can't ever be easy.
0: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So, if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The body in the morgue was definitely Alan Mitchell, the scientist representing the United States in the Kai Lab. His body had been found on a morning commuter train, dead of an apparent heart attack along with a messenger bag containing his laptop, phone, notebooks, and identification cards. The coroner was working on a toxicology report, and the data miners were nearly finished analyzing Mitchell's laptop when Miyako and Emma met Officer Tanaka back at Ninth Step Station. Wasn't this laptop encrypted? Emma asked, looking over Tanaka's shoulder at the open and unlocked computer. "'Mitchell-san was not a computer scientist,' Tanaka said with a hint of pride in her voice. His passwords were not difficult to guess. "'Remind me to change all my passwords later,' Emma grumbled. "'I can recommend a good password manager utility,' Tanaka said. "'Tanaka-san, what have you found here?' Miyako pointed at the laptop screen. "'These appear to be financial transactions.' Yes. Mitchell received several cryptocurrency payments over the past week, presumably in exchange for stealing the cloak from the lab, Tanaka said. It's impossible to trace the source of the payments, but we were able to match the network address of this laptop to an internet cafe here. She brought up a map on the wall screen above the laptop. Miyako's stomach tightened. She recognized the name and location of the cafe. It was a resistance meeting spot, one that Nishimura had mentioned. Something wrong? Emma asked, leaning toward Miyako. No, Miyako replied. I just had a thought. About the cryptocurrency. Yeah? I hate to mention it right now. Noted. What's your thought? That Kensuke might be able to help us trace the payments. And that mentioning him will misdirect you away from what's really troubling me. Emma's face twitched. Does he know something the data miners don't? He has contacts, Miyako said. No offense, Tanaka-san. None taken, Tanaka said. If Maeda-san knows someone who was involved on the other side... They may have information that we cannot extract from this data. I can talk to him, Miyako said. No, Emma said. I'll talk to Kensuke. You go check out that cafe. That surprised Miyako. Are you sure? I'm sure. Emma glanced at the back of Tanaka's head. I have some other private business to discuss with Maeda-san anyway. Miyako nodded. Silently and guiltily glad that Emma's relationship troubles dovetailed with Miyako's own personal turmoil. Okay, let's meet back upstairs after lunch. The internet café down the road from Shinkiba station looked much like any other. Rows of computers lined up against the walls and on long tables, more than half of the workstations being used by young men wearing headphones and playing video games, their fingers twitching over keyboards and touchpads. Miyako, now dressed in street clothes, went up to the counter, where a bored-looking teenage girl primped her pink hair using her phone camera as a mirror. Ahayo gozanimasu, the girl said and put down her phone. Would you like a computer or a coffee? My goldfish needs some fresh water, Miyako said. May I use your washroom? The girl blinked at her once, then handed over a plastic key card. Second door, please. Thank you. Miyako took the key and walked past the washroom door to what looked like a storage closet. She held the key card up to the security plate, which blinked green, then opened the door and stepped inside. Now she was in a small, brightly-lit space. An older, more androgynous youth, dressed in all black, stood in front of another door, and the conspicuous black dome of a security camera hung from the ceiling. "'Fish do not need bicycles in the Matrix,' the youth said, eyeing Miyako. It took her a second to recall the appropriate response to the challenge phrase. "'But pigeons do need three hours to prepare for war.' The youth nodded and opened the inner door. Miyako noticed their fingernails lighting up when they touched the door handle. Some kind of implanted ID tag? Nice hair, the youth said as Miyako walked past. She wasn't sure how to respond to that. The next room was larger, with nearly a dozen people in it. A few were clustered around a computer in the corner. Several others sat at a round table. Talking quietly. They all glanced at Miyako when she entered, but then went back to what they were doing. The atmosphere reminded Miyako more of Ninth Step Station's bullpen than she had expected. Everyone was here to do a job and trusted everyone else with the same. But unlike many police, who cultivated a certain public image, these people were all different. They could have been anybody on the street. An older woman stood up and walked over to Miyako, greeting her with a smile. Welcome, friend, the woman said. I haven't seen you here before. No, this is my... I'm new at this. Miyako was flustered by how casual this all seemed, like it was a social club instead of a resistance cell. How are you connected? Miyako's mouth was dry. Might as well get this over with. Nishimura Hideo. Oh, are you Inspector Koreda Miyako? I was so glad you weren't injured during all that fighting at the diet. Miyako felt lightheaded. I didn't know I was a topic of conversation among... friends. Not generally, but I also know... The woman leaned in. Fujita Kaori. She said you'd gotten a haircut. Very stylish. She put a hand to her chest. I'm Noriko. It's nice to meet you. The name sounded familiar. Kaori had mentioned having a nosy neighbor, hadn't she, at some point? Miyako decided to see how far she could push her luck. Thank you. Good to meet you too, Noriko. Miyako cleared her throat. If I may ask... How much did Kaori tell you about what happened at the diet? Noriko made a face and waved her hand like she was cleaning a window. So awful. Kaori wasn't even supposed to be at that ridiculous Iris Festival dinner. What do you mean? I'll tell you, since we're all friends here. Kaori was supposed to be helping some of us prepare a leaflet drop in the Chinese zone. That's where we both live. As you know, when she got the call to attend that event at the last minute. And, well, it would have been too suspicious for her to refuse an official summons. Miyako felt like her heart was going to explode. So she didn't know she was going to be at the diet? Not until that afternoon. She cancelled on all the rest of us at the last minute. Noriko's expression softened. But it's a good thing you were there to protect her. Kaori can take care of herself, Miyako said. I'm sorry I couldn't do more to help her that day. She understands that your job sometimes has to come first, Noriko said. Just like you understand what she does with her other friends here, right? Of course, Miyako said. Kaori didn't know. Kaori wasn't a part of it. She didn't plant the targeting tag on Major Vargas. She didn't know. Miyako let Noriko introduce her to a few more people. The conversation quickly took an uncomfortable turn, as they were discussing how the Chinese were increasing their own police presence in Tokyo. It's too bad we can't get anyone into their new station, one of the men said, looking pointedly at Miyako. Oh! Oh! Noriko raised one hand, palm up, as if she were presenting an object. Haven't you worked with some of those Chinese detectives, Koreda-san? Miyako nodded slowly. In the past? Under extreme circumstances? Well, maybe if you run into them again... Noriko waved her hand in a suggestive circle. You could do a small favor for our friends? Our friends would very much appreciate any effort, said the man, still staring at Miyako. I can't promise anything, Miyako said. The man nodded. We only ask that you stay aware of opportunities. Miyako glanced at Noriko's hopeful, open face. I can do that. The man gave Miyako a small surveillance device and showed her how to activate it. Not a moment too soon, the alarm Miyako had set on her sleeve went off. She pretended it was an urgent incoming police message and hustled out of the back room, the tiny device feeling like a giant lead weight in her pocket. After using the actual washroom and clearing her head, Miyako returned the key card to the counter girl, who was now braiding her hair. Thank you, Miyako said. Can I ask you one more question? The girl shrugged, attention still on her hair. Sure. Miyako held up her sleeve to show a picture of Alan Mitchell. Have you seen this man in here before? Oh, sure. Bob, right? Miyako decided to go with it. When was the last time you saw Bob here? Yesterday, maybe. He came in two or three times a week, always alone, just wanted to work on his laptop. Thanks. Miyako drew back her arm. That's very helpful. The girl winked at her. Always happy to help a friend. Emma made a face while Kensuke, still naked, reached for the pack of cigarettes on his nightstand. Really? she asked while pulling on her trousers. Kinsuke shrugged and opened the drawer to get his vape pen. Emma sighed and put on her bra. So, she said as she stood and retrieved her shirt from the chair by the bedroom door. You can help me find answers to those questions? Off the record? Kinsuke exhaled a puff of smoke. Is that the only reason you agreed to have lunch with me? Emma smiled and leaned over to kiss his bare shoulder. She wasn't going anywhere near his mouth right now, not with the vaping going on. Maybe, but it's not the reason I'm going to have lunch with you tomorrow. He smiled. The munitions question is easy. I can get you that information within a couple of hours. The other matter, though. He took another thoughtful puff. I'll ask around and see what I can find out. Tanaka is right, in this instance. Some of the older gangsters still don't trust cryptocurrency, and they're happy to complain about it to anyone who will listen. Good. Emma grabbed her jacket. If you think we can trust gang information on this, I'm told the yasukuni Thor had touchy subject with some older Japanese. Kensuke put down his vape pen and fixed Emma with an unexpectedly serious gaze. There is no chance that the gangs are behind this theft. Emma raised an eyebrow at him. Come on! These are historic artifacts. They are finely crafted, yes, Kensika said. But in the end, they are merely sculpted metal. Nothing is worth stealing if it risks bringing Chinese tanks into our streets. You've talked to Ren. You know his priorities. He leaned forward. Over 8,000 Yasukunito were made. There is only one Tokyo. Emma returned his stare until he sat back again. Thank you. Kensuke smiled. I look forward to our next lunch. For a split second, Emma considered telling him everything and asking for his help. I'm tracking down the sniper who killed my friend. I'm going to close the loop on this. But if she did tell him, he would want to talk about it. And she didn't want to talk anymore. She wanted to do something. She needed to take action. Let me know about the munitions, Emma said, and walked out. Nishimura Hideo stepped out of his office and called Tokoreda Miyako. Too late. He saw that Emma Higashi was also back in the bullpen. He kept his face impassive and gestured for both of them to come into his office. Miyako entered first, then Emma, who closed the door behind her. "'I have new information about the Sword Museum theft,' Hideo said. "'You do?' Emma sounded surprised. "'Why didn't this information come to one of us?' "'It is from a confidential informant,' Hideo said.' giving Emma a stern look and then turning back to Miyako. Someone who donates anonymously to the museum and would like their identity kept out of any press coverage. But you're vouching for this person? Emma asked. Yes. Hideo continued looking at Miyako. The family is known for their love of goldfish. Miyako's eyes widened for the briefest of moments, and then she nodded. That was enough to assure Hideo that she understood his meaning. This information comes from my resistance cell. I guarantee that it is trustworthy, but you cannot divulge the source to Emma. I know this informant. I can also vouch for them. Miyako said. Great, then you get to write the report, and you're both on the hook if the chain of evidence bites us in the ass. Emma said, shaking her head. What's the information? The museum hired several additional staff to handle the new exhibit, Hideo said, choosing his words carefully. The security guard on duty last night was referred by a friend, who until recently worked on the building's security software. Emma did a double take. And why wasn't this person already interviewed? We canvassed all current employees, Miyako said. This person would not have been on the current roster. Here's the information. Hideo sent a file from his sleeve to Miyako's. Go talk to him. He held his breath until Emma and Miyako went down the stairs. He wanted to trust Emma with everything, but he couldn't. Not yet. I hope you and Nishimura are right about this source, Emma said as she and Miyako trudged up to the 10th floor of their person of interest's apartment building. The power had been out for a couple of hours now, which meant the stairwell was also accumulating body heat as residents went up and down. Superintendent Nishimura would not mislead us, Miyako said. I'm sure he wouldn't, Emma said, but is he sure about who he can trust right now? If it is the resistance behind this heist, Ren was speculating. Miyako snapped. His priority is keeping the Chinese happy. And they are more than happy to suspect the resistance of anything and everything. We should not leap to the same conclusions. She hoped her agitation wasn't too apparent. She also hoped Emma didn't harbor similar prejudices against Japanese people who were inclined to help the resistance. People like Miyako. Or Kaori. Hey, I'm just thinking out loud. At least we have a real live person of interest now. Emma opened the door from the stairwell to the 10th floor. You want to be good cop for this interview? Miyako pushed away her anxiety and pulled out her badge. I'm always the good cop. You're funny. Bepu Tatsuchi lived in a small apartment by himself, and he acted genuinely surprised to see two police detectives at his door. His facade crumbled quickly under Miyako's pointed questions and Emma's withering stare. "'I wasn't trying to cause trouble,' Bepu protested when Emma held up a pair of handcuffs. "'I'm not lying to you.' "'You're also not telling us enough,' Miyako said, looming over him. "'We want the whole story. Leave nothing out.' Bepu pursed his lips. "'I don't want to bore you with technical details.' That's fine, Emma said, twirling the handcuffs. We can bring the whole CSI team up here. Superintendent Nishimura can get us a probable cause warrant for all these hard drives, right, Koreda san? She gestured at the many computer systems in various states of disassembly around the apartment. I'm sure it won't be a problem, Miyako said, staring at Beppo. All right, I'll summarize. Beppo sighed. The museum fired me because another employee reported that I had made threatening statements after a staff meeting. But the meeting was about how the Chinese were taking over our main gallery with their bullshit Making Peace exhibit. And that's all I said. That it was bullshit. We're a private museum. They shouldn't be able to use us for propaganda. So they fired you, Miyako said. What did you do then? Like I said, I wasn't trying to cause trouble. Bapu threw up his hands. How was I supposed to know that somebody wanted to rob the museum? All I did was put up a forum post about a back door into the museum's intranet and suggest that somebody could use that to, you know, adjust the images and text displayed in the main gallery. He raised a finger. That's the only thing I said. You can't blame me for whatever someone else decided to do with that information. Emma and Miyako exchanged a brief look of mild exasperation. We're going to need to see that forum post, Emma said. They were back in the car and headed to Ninth Step Station when Miyako said, Emma, I have a personal question for you. Emma looked up from her sleeve. Here we go. Yeah? Would you like to meet Kaori? This was not the confrontation that Emma had been bracing herself for. Miyako stared down at her own sleeve while the vehicle rounded a corner. Sure. Of course. I'd love to meet her, Emma said. Not sure where this was coming from, but not wanting to shut down Miyako sharing more about her personal life. What did you have in mind? Is lunch too much? Miyako asked. We can just have tea. I just thought... After everything that's happened... No, lunch is fine, Emma said quickly. She was also grateful for an excuse to not have to spend that time with Kensuke. The sex was good, but the talking was never her favorite. We don't have to meet her in the Chinese zone. I don't mind. I've got some business to conduct over there anyway, and this will be a good smokescreen. They spent the rest of the drive negotiating lunch cuisine. Emma insisted that vegetarian was fine, if that's what Miyako and Kaori preferred. But she still wasn't sold on tofu in general, despite Miyako reciting a litany of possible preparation styles. By the time they got to the data miner pool, Tanaka had already started correlating Beppu's information with everything they had recovered off Mitchell's laptop and some personal leads from Kensuke. The forum wasn't difficult to crack. Tanaka said. It's not properly a dark web site, so their security isn't the best. So you can tell who read Bepu's post about the back door? Emma asked. Not exactly. We can scan the logins. Tanaka paused. I don't want to bore you with technical details. Emma resisted the urge to say something about having just left this party. Just tell us what we need to know, Tanaka-san. The server logs tell us which users viewed that particular forum thread. Tanaka brought up another window, dense with information, and where they connected from. It is possible for a user to conceal their location using VPNs or other routing tricks, but we can still trace parts of that path. And since we have three separate trails, Mitchell's laptop... Bepu's forum, and the cryptocurrency payments. We can see where those overlap and attempt to construct a full end-to-end path. Tanaka was smiling now. Please tell me your attempt was successful, Emma said. We have a location. The screen changed to a different flood of letters and numbers that Emma couldn't understand. This appears to be one specific computer terminal, but we don't know who was using it. Hold up. Emma pointed to the top of the screen. Does that say Meikai University? Yes. Miyako worked her sleeve frantically. I have their data here. Let me see if that network address... Yes, I found it. She sent her information to Tanaka's screen. That's a match. Tanaka's fingers danced over her touchscreen. And the university intranet should have a record of which user was logged in during each of the times we're interested in. A new window popped up, and Tanaka frowned at a long string of katakana. What kind of name is that? Emma pounded a fist on the table. (laughs) It's Russian! The emergency response team commandos scared some undergraduates as they stormed into the Meikai lab ahead of Miyako and Emma. But Dr. Voronova barely seemed perturbed when the police flooded into her small office. She simply nodded, shut down her computer, and raised her hands. Why did you kill Alan Mitchell? Emma asked as one of the commandos handcuffed Voronova, and others started searching her office. Wasn't it your Benjamin Franklin who said, Three may keep a secret. If two of them are dead? Voronova smiled. Emma wasn't smiling. Are we looking for another body, Doctor? I didn't kill anyone, Voronova said. Emma scoffed. So you're just a common thief. Do you really think my government cares about a bunch of rusty old swords? We care about the cloaking technology. I just needed to see it in action. To develop a countermeasure, Miyako said. Of course. Dr. Mitchell was overzealous, Voronova said. He kept talking about actually stealing the prototype, taking it out of Japan. Ridiculous! All we need is enough data to analyze, and information is so much easier to smuggle across borders. I tried to talk him out of it. But you know Americans. She shrugged, so overconfident. Emma glared at Voronova. But you didn't kill him. I didn't have to. Someone else wanted that privilege. Everything she said was making Miyako's skin crawl. So you found some other criminals who would pay you to steal the cloak, Emma said. And they didn't like Alan Mitchell's attitude, so they punched his ticket. Isn't this third party also going to come murder you now, once they learn of your arrest? To keep as many secrets as they can? We have both gained what we wanted from our arrangement, Voronova said. It would be imprudent for them to molest me. You police, though? There was that wolfish grin again. You have bigger problems here in Tokyo than you might imagine, Koreda-san. Nakajimakai! Nishimura could hardly contain his rage. The museum thieves are Nakajimakai. Our Russian friend saw a tattoo, Emma said, and was sneaky enough to snap a pic. She swiped up on her sleeve to send the photo to Nishimura's wall display. And this image has been authenticated? By three different data miners, tasked separately, Miyako said. She didn't believe the persistent post-war rumors of police corruption, but she did believe that many people feared what the gangs might do to witnesses. The photograph is authentic. And time-stamped, and geolocated. Emma added. She pointed to the top left corner. You can even see part of the late Dr. Mitchell's mug right there. This is not conclusive, Nishimura said. We don't know why all these people were in the same place at the same time. That's why we wanted to talk to our new best friend, Captain Wren. Emma said. He's in the building for another meeting, isn't he? Budget discussions, I believe. Miyako and I can just catch him on the way out. There shouldn't be too many reporters around. I'll get him up here, Nishimura jabbed at his phone. You too. Sit. Several uncomfortable minutes passed while they waited for Ren to join them. Miyako wasn't about to ask what message Nishimura had sent him. And this didn't seem like an appropriate time to continue lunch location talks with Emma. She turned up the news in her ear and listened for a while. Chinese detained citizens at new border within Tokyo. Rumors of food rationing on Hokkaido. Heat wave continues. When Ren finally arrived, he wore a sour expression. Superintendent. He scowled at Miyako and Emma. Show me. Miyako put the photo back up and explained its provenance. Ren fumed silently for a moment, then cracked his knuckles and said, These are rogue actors. The Nakajima Kai do not condone their actions. Is that an official statement? Emma asked. Are we on the record? I won't bore you with their history, Ren said. But these... punks help no one with their reckless actions. Leadership can usually keep them under control but they've been emboldened by recent movements against the Chinese. You know how competitive young men are. And now that the resistance has started showing some teeth, he gave Nishimura a significant look. I can only imagine that the punks wanted to show they could at least hurt China's pride. Nishimura stood and returned Ren's glare. I'm glad to hear that you share our disdain for these youths and their actions. Perhaps you have access to information which could assist us in their apprehension. I can help you find them, Ren said, and I want to be there when you arrest them. Is that wise? Miyako blurted out. If these thieves recognize you, they could... She trailed off with a look at Emma. Do they know anything that might affect your new position, Captain? Emma asked Ren. Anything we don't want them to say in public? This wasn't actually about keeping him from looking bad. This was about preserving the delicate new balance of power in Tokyo. Ren gave them a lopsided smile. Anything these children say can easily be discredited, Higashi-san. Miyako's skin crawled, but she nodded deferentially. We can bring you in an unmarked vehicle. And we don't introduce the captain until after the dust settles. Emma gave Nishimura a sidelong glance. We are going to roll ERT on this, right? These punks must have access to firepower. I would advise some finesse, Ren said. We don't want a high body count on this. Emma nodded, with an odd expression on her face that Miyako couldn't decipher. You have a suggested plan of entry? Yes. Ren raised his sleeve and took over the wall display. It will take a little time to set up. Emma checked the time again. Still another hour before the Tokyo police were scheduled to kick down the Kai punk's door across town. That should be plenty of time for her to close the loop here. But the person she was supposed to meet was late. She hoped that didn't mean he wasn't going to show at all. "'Kensuke's leads had seemed solid, but maybe Emma wanted this too much. "'Maybe she'd gotten her hopes up for nothing. "'She was also starting to regret wearing all her gear in the summer heat. "'Finding this shady spot under the solar panels on the warehouse roof was a bit of luck. "'It also had the advantage of hiding her from any possible drone surveillance. "'But she'd been staked down here long enough that the sun had moved.' and was now baking her black neoprene-clad left elbow. She sighted through the scope of her sniper rifle again. The motion was familiar from years of training and military deployment. Even if this particular firearm wasn't her usual hardware, it had been tough to find something in the peacekeeper armory that wouldn't be missed for the better part of a day. Are you really going to do this, Higashi? Emma slowly sighted around the empty warehouse that was her target area. The black SUV parked at the north end of that building had sensor-opaked windows all around, so it was impossible for anyone to see inside, even with thermal or electromagnetic scopes. The diplomatic vehicle had also been difficult to sneak out of the peacekeepers' garage, but Emma was able to cash in some favors. She'd been in country long enough to have a reputation among the newer peacekeepers. And she certainly wasn't above using her close personal relationship to the late Major Vargas for advantage. Especially not in this case. Another car drove slowly into the warehouse from the south end, stopping almost half the length of the building from the sedan. The new car flashed its headlights in an irregular pattern of long and short flashes. Emma tapped her sleeve, and the SUV's headlights replied with their own prearranged code pattern. So far, so good, Emma thought as a bead of sweat rolled down the back of her neck. The driver's side door of the new car opened, and the driver leaned his body out slightly. He wore a colorful oni mask to conceal his face. The particular demon he'd chosen was also part of the confirmation for this meeting. He swung a small duffel bag out of the car and started to stand, then stopped, looking across the warehouse at the sedan. Konbanwa, the masked driver called, deliberately using the wrong time of day greeting as a challenge phrase. Do you know when the train arrives? Emma took a deep breath. She wasn't sure this bit would be entirely convincing, but she didn't have much of a choice now. She moved her face away from the scope and spoke into her data slave. Hajimemashite. You can board after the end of this podcast. The SUV rebroadcast her voice through its external loudspeakers. The masked man hesitated, then nodded and stepped out of his car. Emma exhaled. It had sounded convincing enough, and that was all that mattered. She put her eye back to the scope. The man was still standing behind his car door, and there was a pillar blocking her view of his body. He wasn't moving forward. ''Come on, motherfucker,'' Emma muttered. ''Step up.'' Without looking, she slid a finger over another control on her sleeve. The SUV's motorized rear cargo door unlocked and started rising. The masked driver stepped away from his car, closed the door, and took a step forward with his bag. Emma squeezed her trigger once. The man's head jerked to the side. The windshield of his car spiderwebbed, and his body crumpled to the ground. It took Emma nearly a minute to catch her breath, and longer after that for her hands to stop shaking enough for her to work the drone controls on her sleeve. How long had it been since she'd last done this? She tried not to think about it. The drone launched from her quiver and disappeared over the edge of the rooftop. She turned on the feed to her eye and watched as the drone entered the warehouse and circled the masked man's vehicle once to make sure there was nobody else in the car and no suspicious radio transmissions or movement, then dropped on top of the duffel bag on the ground. It took the drone several seconds to deploy its small manipulator arm, find the zipper, and pull the bag open. Emma couldn't help looking at the man's lifeless body the whole time. Finally, the drone maneuvered itself into position to illuminate and catalog the contents of the bag. Emma watched as the image analysis overlaid the video feed in her eye. Both the labeling on the boxes of ammunition and the barcodes stamped into the rims of the cartridges themselves confirmed it. The man really was prepared to sell her a nearly full box of very specialized sniper rifle bullets. The same bullets that had killed Santiago Vargas. Emma's vision blurred. A tear escaped her eye, mingling with the perspiration on her face. And then she started sobbing. You got him. You got the bastard who killed Santiago. It may have cost you everything, but you avenged your dead friend. So why the fuck are you crying, bitch? Emma rolled onto her side and wept until her sleeve buzzed with an incoming alert. It was time to join Miyako and the ERT commandos for the raid on the Kai punks' hideout. Emma wiped her face and told her drone to shatter the car window and retrieve her spent round from inside. While it did that, she broke down her rifle and made sure there was no evidence of her ever having been on the rooftop. Miyako was surprised at just how much information Ren was willing to share with the ERT captain. He had given up the name of the punk pictured in Voronova's photo, which allowed the data miners to pull his criminal record and known associates. Ren had also provided detailed instructions for breaching the punk's hideout in the basement of an abandoned bank building, without admitting how or why the Nakajimakai leadership had such extensive knowledge of the old vault and safety deposit box areas. But all that information allowed the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department to conduct their raid using non-lethal means, and subdue the entire gang of 22 punks with no casualties and only one broken arm. Sustained when the youth attempted to rush past Miyako and dodged her tackle right into a wall, she didn't feel too bad about that. After the drones sweeping the perimeter had cleared away the smoke, and all the punks had been cuffed and rounded up in the center of the room, Emma came down the stairs, looking very tired. Miyako walked over to meet her as the commandos carefully began removing the recovered Yasukunito, each sword carried by two men at a time. Guess I missed all the fun, Emma said, and now Miyako could see her eyes were bloodshot. Is everything all right? Miyako asked her partner. Where were you? Emma shook her head. Personal business. Miyako raised an eyebrow. Well, at least I know it wasn't Kensuke related. She waved over her shoulder at Kensuke, who was making his way down the line of punks and encouraging each one to cooperate. Emma laughed. I wouldn't let him interfere with the case. No, I had to deal with some administrative stuff at the Peacekeeper base. The new commander has made housing transfers a real pain in the ass. It's all settled now, though. Miyako nodded. Good. Come on, you can go help Ren-san. Emma rolled her eyes. I think he'd prefer to work alone. Ren had shouldered Kensuke aside and was shouting at the punks. You want to play with swords? We have a place for foolish children like you. And it's not in Japan. Miyako folded her arms and leaned back against the wall. Is that what you mean when you say bad cop? Emma got a faraway look in her eyes. One of us has to be the bad cop. It was, Emma had to admit, pretty nice in the Chinese zone of Tokyo. Power never fluctuated here, the streets were clean, and the storefronts of businesses still closed after the earthquake had been covered up with colorful murals. Of course, many of the paintings depicted happy citizens waving Chinese flags, and extolled the virtues of the PRC and their current president. Propaganda in the guise of public art. The wall of the building next to where she and Miyako and Kaori were eating lunch showed a group of happy children playing underneath what looked like a protective canopy of drones. Not quite the floating curtain that delineated the current national border, but similar enough that the message was hard to miss. One of the children was even waving at a drone. Is your food okay? Kaori asked. Emma yanked her attention back to her lunch companions. Yes, this place was a very good choice. Kaori nodded. I like the way they do mabu tofu. Miyako elbowed her playfully. Kaori is something of a tofu enthusiast. Excuse you? Kaori said in English. I prefer the term connoisseur. I have to admit, tofu's never been my favorite, but this is delicious. Emma smiled and went in for another bite. As her lips closed around the pungent so-called delicacy, her cybernetic eye lit up with an alert. Thin glowing lines appeared in her field of vision, directing her attention to a man walking past the restaurant. The drone she had left in their car parked across the street, had recognized this man's face as one of Charles Yardley III's known associates in Tokyo. Emma hadn't expected to pick up a lead so soon, but this was why she was here in the Chinese zone for lunch, choking down spicy tofu and propaganda. This was why she had been staying up late every night and cautiously copying relevant police and peacekeeper data to an encrypted personal laptop. Emma swallowed her bite of tofu and then downed the rest of her glass of water. I'm going to get some more water. Either of you want anything? Miyako and Kaori both declined. And for a split second, Emma was intensely jealous of their obvious chemistry. Maybe their good mood would only last until the end of lunch today, until something else came crashing into their lives to complicate the relationship. But what they had in that moment was genuine and rare. Emma let herself wallow for a moment as she walked away from the table, looking for an exit from the restaurant that was hidden from view of their table. She might not have the satisfaction of a healthy romance to sustain her, but she had something else that was equally compelling. She had a mission. She had closed the loop on Santiago's killer. She'd punished the guilty, and she hadn't lost her soul she still felt righteous, justified, empowered to follow her own path, regardless of what the police or the peacekeepers were willing to officially authorize. Now, Emma was going to get to the bottom of whatever Charles was up to.
0: You're listening to Ninth Step Murders Season 2. Created and produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Ninth Step Murders is written by Malka Older, Fran Wilde, Jacqueline Koyanagi, and Curtis C. Chen. Produced by Rhoda Bayessa, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Emily Wu Zeller. Audio production, direction, sound design, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Cover design by Kendall Thomas with original illustration by Armin
1: Rangani.